0: Welcome back to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. Some stories keep calling me to be written, and of them all, the story of the sinking of the RMS Titanic has been tugging at my sleeve for a long time. As I write this introduction, the date is April 12, 2019. 107 years, almost to the day, that the Titanic struck an iceberg in the North Atlantic, and that happened on Sunday, April 14, 1912. On this day, Friday the 12th, the 2,224 passengers and crew aboard the prize cruise ship of the White Star Lines were two days at sea on her maiden voyage, which had begun in Southampton, England, and now was headed for New York City. Many of you are listening to this first of at least three episodes on the night of Sunday, April 14th, and the morning of April 15th, exactly 107 years after the unsinkable Titanic, the marvel of modern-day engineering, sank. Our Titanic story begins here, with an author interview, which I will introduce in a few moments, followed by our story on the mysteries that surround the Titanic. Was the sinking foretold? And the answer is a definite yes, in many ways. And also, a multi-episode reading of a survivor's story, the book The Loss of the Titanic by James Beasley, which we're featuring at 1001 Heroes every Wednesday night starting this week. Check the show notes after this show for links. He began writing one week after the sinking, and his eyewitness story is incredible. This is a huge story to tell, and it contains hundreds of different smaller stories safer to say thousands of stories, encompassing every category that this show covers, heroes, legends, histories, and mysteries. And I've waited a long time to do it, maybe fearing that I couldn't do this story justice with just one podcast. I think I was waiting for a sign. And that sign came to me from one of my favorite publishers, Reginary, a division of Salem Media Group, with a request to take a look at a brand new book titled The Last Night on the Titanic, Unsinkable Drinking, Dining and Style, by Veronica Hinky. My first thought was that the story was going to take a look at the rich and famous of pre-World War I Edwardian era society, and I wondered, how can this book, the title of which promises to describe a lavish night of drinking and dining and style, by what I thought was a chosen few, How could it possibly connect with the horrors of that tragic night and morning of April 14th and 15th as the unsinkable Titanic, after hours of human horrors, slipped beneath the waves, along with 1,503 souls? But I was soon to find that Veronica Hinky nailed it perfectly with this book and this title, because on that night of April 14th, life was being celebrated the champagne, drinks, and wine were flowing from the twelve thousand bottle wine cellar aboard the Titanic. The incredible cuisine was being enjoyed, and on every deck, from first class to steerage, the passengers were having the time of their lives, sharing hopes and dreams for the future, joining in the merriment and festivities which the Titanic offered, and living life to the fullest on every deck. They had no idea what was about to happen in the minutes and hours after 11.40 p.m. on that Sunday, April 14th, when the Titanic's hull was ripped asunder by an iceberg, and if there ever was a window of time to history that we could enter to get a better understanding of 1912. The night of Sunday, April 14th, aboard the Titanic, was it. Why this time and place? The hours that comprised that day and that night are probably the most documented hours of the 20th century, having spawned countless books, articles, memoirs, documentaries, and movies. And the life stories and controversies that emerged from that tragedy have helped to secure the sinking of the Titanic as a timeless metaphor for disaster and heartbreak known around the world. The sinking of the RMS Titanic, which the best shipbuilders in the world said was unsinkable, also came to represent. Man's helplessness in the face of nature. The stories of heroism and sacrifice have become the stuff of legend. The mysteries involving the uncanny foretelling of doom for the Titanic are a story in themselves, and I will release that story as a single episode very soon. Today's episode features a very interesting interview with author Veronica Hinke that helps us enter that precarious window in time by joining the passengers of the RMS Titanic at the dinner table, as they enjoyed life and hopes for a future that for many was about to change forever. Our slogan at 1001 Heroes is that we make history come alive, and Veronica Hinke is going to help history come alive right now. We're very proud to have with us Veronica Hinky. Veronica, how are you doing today?
1: I am great, John. I'm really looking forward to talking with you.
0: What inspired you to write The Last Night on the Titanic and also tell us a little bit about about your background?
1: Well, my background has a lot to do with why I wrote this book. I have a background as a features and food reporter and in looking at the different chefs and home cooks throughout the years, it's always been one thing at the core of every story. At the heart of every story, John, it's about the people, you know, and learning about other things about them and their lives. In this case, there was just a great example of that throughout the book. So many different stories about these incredible heroes and, and brave people and just people that, you know, survived and even the ones that didn't survive, their stories that they faced are just amazing and we were able to tell those stories um, by looking at the through the lens of culinary and we include many different facets of style we even look at music flowers uh, home furnishings fashion but the the real crux of this book is the food and the drinking the cocktails the champagnes the wines and we were able to um, include people who tucked away menus, people who wrote letters home. Like I, I, Yesterday would have been the 100th, it was the 107th anniversary of the letter that Adolphe Salfeld wrote home to his wife after he boarded the Titanic at Southampton. He had this sumptuous lunch in first class and he wrote to her about every detail of that lunch. So we were able to look at those things and we extrapolated a little bit beyond you know where the menus where there were gaps in you know all the details about all the different foods we looked at restaurants at the time and what they would have been serving so I went back and looked at recipes and and menus from Delmonico's in New York City for example and from Antoine's in New Orleans places that you know were also at the height of style during the Edwardian era.
0: That was that was one of my questions for you. Do you think the sinking of the Titanic had something to do with the beginning of the end of the Edwardian era?
1: Well it definitely was a pinnacle for many people of you know the the iconic sort of, you know, the the time capsule that it shows us of what that life was like for so many reasons because there was so much um, notoriety and news attached to it, to it, because it was such a horrible tragedy. And I think that you know what what really happened later on was it was really a big part of it too. World War One was a huge factor in abolishing the class system as we have ever known it, and we haven't seen anything like it since. And I think that this was probably the most newsworthy thing that happened around that time period or one of the the most probably the biggest news story around the world during those years so um a combination i think it was just sort of like a many com- many factors in combination that um uh, make the titanic sort of a you know i called it a pinnacle of of what life was like the height of that lifestyle
0: I'm hoping you can paint the scene for us uh, to give us the style, the atmosphere, the music, and the energy of that last meal on the Titanic.
1: Well, you know, for those of, who've watched the movie by James Cameron, the Titanic movie, he really nailed it. It, it was just a real um, festive environment in all the classes that night. And in each class, first, second, and third, there were significant Things happening there. There was a lot of gaiety, in, in especially in steerage and first class, and uh, in second class, something really special happened. A group of friends, people who had become friends on their journey, unknowing that, not knowing that this would be their the final night for many of them, and not knowing the amazing disaster that they would face within just a few hours. They wanted to have a hymn service, and it wasn't scheduled. John, it was something that they just wanted to do, and they they um, got together and they asked Lawrence Beasley, who was a English journalist who was on the trip in second class. They asked him to, you know, ask the chaplain if if something could be arranged for them. Uh, that's how devout these Christians were in second class. Of this group that. Got together. They they really wanted to um, to drum this up. They they wanted to have a, a hymn service, and so many of the hymns were hymns that they sang that were um, they had the same theme of what they would soon face. Oh, yeah, it's yeah, amazing. Major. It was amazing, and the titles of the songs are included in the book, and so many of them are. It's just awesome to think. Yeah, I was that. looking at
0: the lyric uh the lyrics that you added uh, to your book on songs like Autumn, uh and Nearer of course Nearer My God to Thee and the Navy Hymn. And then there were so many others where it was just prophetic. Uh,
1: prophetic, the, the, right. That's the word. Lead kindly light. That was one of the ones like a a green pastor song that was another song that you know, just was really almost foretelling of what these people were going to experience. So I I just wanted to start with that because it was the most surprising thing to me. I hadn't known about the hymn service until I started researching for the book. And I think it's really important to uh, to really highlight w- what these people were like. That was important to them. I mean, we, we do want to focus on that kind of a, a thing as well. I. I think we'd be hard-pressed to find an example like that in this day and age. I don't think you'd have people, um, you know, getting a hymn service together on a cruise ship like the Titanic. Maybe I'm wrong, but I thought that was really telling of the era. Um, And then in first class, the, the real big story of that night was that there was a retirement dinner that only a handful of couples were invited to, even though it was in the midst of the first-class dining room. So um, all around this private group, there were individual diners who were not a part of the party, but the retirement dinner was for Captain Smith. This was going to be his uh, last voyage. It's another incredible irony that I cannot believe that he was going to retire after he got back on this crossing when he returned from the United States, he was going to retire. And so the Wideners of Philadelphia planned a beautiful dinner for him. And we don't know what was served that night, but we can imagine that it was likely a variety of things that are mentioned in the book. Um, We do know that there was a lot of gaiety, as I mentioned earlier. Some described it as the height of gaiety on the trip. It was the most festive night of the trip. There were people standing up in first class, you know, reciting toast to the Titanic, and um, it was just a very excited night. Um, and around 9:30, 10 o'clock, most of the people retired to their cabins to go to sleep. Many of the male passengers went to the smoking rooms. Uh, in those days, women were not allowed, so it would be mostly, you know, it would be the men in the smoking room. So there were several people that were playing cards sipping hot lemonade, they were, um, you know, sitting around drinking cocktails and hot toddies and um, nightcaps, which were popular at the time. And when people were awakened, it was around 1140 when the Titanic struck the iceberg. So um, that was when you know, the tragedy began, was when they started loading the lifeboats. At first, there was a lot of hesitancy to board the lifeboats. People did not think that they would be safe in a lifeboat. They thought they'd be safe around the Titanic. So they even asked people like Violet Jessup, a crew member, a young gal crew member, they asked her to board a lifeboat so that others would be inspired to follow her, um, her lead. And then they would start to board the lifeboat. So it was really hard. They were hard-pressed to get them filled. And that's one of the reasons that not all of them went out. Even close to full, there there were a lot of instances like that, and when we look at the loading of the lifeboats, that's when we really start to see people take the shape of a hero. That's when we see people that are just incredible heroes in the face of death. Even
0: would you share the story? It was a man and wife uh, who both were invited into the lifeboat, and yet they ended up leaving the lifeboat. And she gave her coat to their maid, who stayed in the lifeboat. Who was that? What couple was that? Ida? That was, uh,
1: yes, good memory. Ida and Isadora Strauss of the Macy's Company. And um, this is a a fabulous story for inspiration, and it's about love. And, you know, I think it would renew hope in someone who's ever been you know, wronged in any kind of relationship about what the power of love and dedication with this couple. Uh, she, of course, is one of the wealthiest women in, in the world, one of the wealthiest women on the ship. Uh, she was offered a seat in a, in a lifeboat. She was a first-class passenger and uh, it was ladies first, ladies, women and children first. And so men stood down, many men did, and, you know, even John Jacob Esther IV, Probably the wealthiest man in the world at the time did not get in a lifeboat. Even though there was a seat open, he could not take it. And Ida turned to her husband and she said, I am not going. I love you so much. And if, you know, where he goes, I go, she said. And they stayed on the deck until the waves swept them away. Beforehand, she gave her fur coat to her new maid. She had just hired her new maid and what, this was the first time they were getting to know her. She was traveling back from Europe with them. Now, years later, the maid tried to give the fur coat back to a daughter of the Strausses, and her daughter said, it was either a daughter or a daughter-in-law, I think it was one of her actual daughters, she said, no, my mother would have wanted you to keep this coat. You know, even knowing how much, coat, how much this coat would be valuable, with the notoriety in the in all around the world about the Titanic, she said, please keep the coat. And I thought that was another example of demonstrating love and, you know, support for this woman. That she did not need to give her that coat, and she did not need to, her daughter didn't need to let her keep it. It's just a beautiful story.
0: Yeah, it was wonderfully written. Uh, every, every page in your book... I find is just a terrific story and your book is so rare because it's a it's a culinary narrative and it ties everything together with the meals and the drinks. Tell us a little bit about Colonel Astor and his uh activities on the ship that night and also how the um how certain drinks came from his efforts.
1: Yes, I love to talk about Colonel Astor because I did not have the full uh full view of him before I started researching this book John Jacob Astor IV was one of the most incredible men that ever lived I used to look at him like okay he was you know I knew he was very wealthy very powerful and he went down on the Titanic and then I started looking into this man and found out that he was an author of a science fiction novel a published novel about everything that he foretold in the future and that included things like you know, um, video cameras and mallet trains and all these things that, you know, air travel, solar power, the whole deal. Yes, and it was an amazing, um, genius work that he put together um, that I think he should be getting still today incredible credit for. He invented things like the street cleaner. I think it was one of the first street cleaners ever and he had a patent for it. He was the first person to start using red velvet ropes to control crowds at big events, much like we do now at premieres and um, all sorts of different galas and so forth. And the, the red carpet that we talk about today so often was no doubt associated with the development of that, whether he was using red carpets at the time. But he certainly laid the groundwork for that whole approach of crowd management. He was the first person in New York City that I know of to strategically locate a hotel, in this case the Knickerbocker, inside an entrance inside a subway station. So, you know, it's kind of a known thing, easily known now that um, hotel developers and other business owners will try to put their businesses as close as they can to Uh, like here in Chicago, by an L station or a subway station. And that's sort of the, you know, ancestor of where that all started. He, to this day, you can see where the door is blocked in the subway station years ago. You could have gone right through that door into the Knickerbocker. So he thought of that. And then I included a couple of drinks that were invented at the Knickerbocker and the St. Regis after the Titanic only because, um, They're of the same general era, and I also wanted to highlight how his influence with the Saint Regis and the Waldorf Astoria and the Knickerbocker, how his influence was carried out. Even you know, they talk about was the sink unsinkable? Is this you know they thought this was an unsinkable ship? And I start out the book asking the question, you know. Maybe it was sort of unsinkable because those people's legacies live on, and the two cocktails I included to to really underscore that are the red snapper, and the um, the which of course was the predecessor to the bloody mary, and the the perfect martini or the martini as we know it today. And those were both invented later on at hotels that John Jacob Astor IV had had started.
0: Another incredible personality. In fact, we did a we did a podcast story on her uh, about a year ago. Was Margaret uh, Brown Molly Brown, and there was a, uh, a as you well know, there's a, there was a very famous stage play called The Unsinkable Molly Brown. Tell our listeners a little bit about her and uh, and how she ended up on the Titanic.
1: Molly Brown survived and. You know, as a woman in her day, she was not able to testify during the inquiries. And um, she she just didn't let things like that stop her from doing amazing things. She still went on and ran for public office. You know, um, as far as demonstration of her bravery and her heroism, which was amazing on the Titanic, I like to think about what Mr. Rogers, Fred Rogers, shared with us. Um, after 9-11, he said that his mother had always told him, Fred, when there is a disaster, always look for the helpers. You will always find helpers, and that will keep you inspired. And Molly, in in my opinion, is one of the greatest examples of the helpers on the Titanic. Molly set out afloat in a lifeboat in pitch darkness. It was really hard to get into these lifeboats because... Some people had to jump at least a level down or sometimes two levels down to get into them. There were people jumping on top of each other. Some of the lifeboats were upended where the front end was higher than the other. And then once they were complete pitch darkness in freezing waters. So she encouraged the women in her lifeboat to stay warm by rowing. And that was her. She was a natural leader when she got aboard the Carpathia in the next morning uh, of April 15th, um, we're coming up on that anniversary on Monday, the 15th, of when the uh, Carpathia rescued the survivors from the waters. She right away is set to task organizing a group of, of course, mostly men at that time. I think it was all men. And she was one of the key ringleaders in organizing a group to acknowledge Captain Rostron and his crew with a, they gave him a a cup, Um, you know, they were very um, ceremonious in it later on. They, you know, they went back after they, uh, many, uh, many weeks or so after the disaster, but that was where they started culminating this whole um, honorary for him and his crew. And, you know, many of us might've been tempted to just cower in a corner and, try to warm up and feel sorry for ourselves and she took that and she transposed that energy into helping others
0: tell us the story if you wouldn't mind about uh, you have some great recipes there for the the head chef charles and how do you pronounce his name it's spelled j-o-a-g-h-i-n
1: charles jockin
0: yeah jockin yeah could you give us his story it's absolutely incredible and there's some there's some delicious recipes uh to put together in his honor but what a story.
1: He, well, you know, it is an incredible story. And I was so blessed to be able to connect with his great niece. She lives in New Jersey, where he ended out his days. And this story is if you want to talk about a hero. He was just incredible, John. Um I had seen depictions of him in movies like the movie that James Cameron did, the Titanic movie that we so many of us know and love. And we see Charles Jockin depicted in a baker's cap, running up the poop deck with Kate Winslet. And I think everybody noticed that. And he's gone down in history as the man who supposedly survived by drinking. And of course, we all know now that that couldn't have been true, that couldn't have really happened that way. But he was drinking. He explained to the British inquiry why And um, it's actually an amazing story. Over the years, we've heard that he was drinking whiskey. And his niece was able to confirm for me that it was actually schnapps he said that he was drinking. And she also told me that he was a fabulous French pastry chef. So he was the chief baker aboard the Titanic. But, you know, just to get a job on the Titanic, especially during a coal strike was going on, And at the time, and so it was really hard to get a job at the sea. And Charles Jockin had been getting jobs at, on the ocean since he was a little boy. He was not able to go to school because he had to leave school to go to work on the seas full time. Can you imagine, you know, this little boy and um, then he ended up learning how to be a French pastry chef and he would make fabulous cakes, christening cakes and so forth for his family uh, with beautiful uh, blown sugar toppings, and he would make lovely chocolate eclairs he liked to make, and mincemeat pies. And um, he was just a really great uh, baker, uh, ba- pastry chef. And he got this job aboard the Titanic, like many of the staff. He had come from Titanic's sister ship, the Olympic. He had been on working on the Olympic. So he had had a few experiences in his career of disaster at sea—not nothing like the Titanic, of course—but other near misses or close calls. And so he knew to check his lifeboat assignment. It was 107 years ago today, John, that Charles Jockin stopped in his bakery and looked at the crew assignments for the lifeboat and noted which lifeboat he was to man if there was a disaster. And sure enough, three days later, um, that Saturday night, when the iceberg struck at 1140, he heard it. He was in his bunk. He was resting. He went up. He right away went to his checklist. He got his um, the bread loaves loaded. He got his crew up, got them to load the lifeboats with bread. Um, and then he went to help load the lifeboats. help get people into them and when it was time for his lifeboat his assigned lifeboat to leave he did not receive the command to board that lifeboat now can you imagine knowing this is his only hope of getting off this ship at this point they know this ship is not going to make it so that is when as he told the British inquiry later that's when he went downstairs to his bunk to have a nip and um, that was he might have had a jerry rig still. A lot of the crew would have had um, stills in their rooms. As a baker, he would have had access to yeast, berries, and other fruits, plenty of different ingredients to, to do something like that. So then he comes back upstairs and he sees that all the lifeboats are gone. And he looks at the deck chairs. And this is where I'm inspired. He says to himself, I'm going to throw all these deck chairs. It's really like just lumbering, heavy deck chairs. I'm going to throw them into the water, and then maybe I'll have one I can hold on to when I'm in that water. And that's what he does, and he's completely worn out from that, goes to have a drink of water, and then he notices that, that rush in the James Cameron movie of people running up the poop deck. That actually happened just like that. And he was swept up into that group, and then the waves carried him away he tried to get on a lifeboat once he was in the waters, and he couldn't get on a lifeboat. He found one overturned lifeboat with just way too many men on it. He he noticed a cook that he knew, and it was um, a cook by the name of Maynard. He held out his hand, and he held on to Charles's hand, and then a little while later, they heard somebody yelled, we have room for 10 more, and he said, let go of my hand, and he Swam over to the lifeboat, and eventually he made it on the Carpathia. When he got on board he said he, he said he was so frozen, the, the water was so cold he had tread water for two hours, even though he said his hair didn't even get wet
0: now the water the water was twenty eight degrees right
1: right and he was right. wearing he was
0: wearing a waist belt uh, vest:
1: yes, and he said that it helped him so much that he didn't even get his hair wet and then he said they Popped me into the oven like one of my own pies, <laughs> and um, he told his nieces and nephews later that he knew it was an iceberg because he saw a polar bear and it waved at him.
0: Yeah, always, uh, always telling the story without the horror, right? To his yeah, the little ones after. Yes, and and can you imagine uh, yeah,
1: how how would you handle that when you have little ones? that are looking up to you, and you have to tell that story. It's just remarkable.
0: Yeah, that's, it's an incredible story. He suffered further tragedies, did he not? I believe his, his wife died in childbirth.
1: Yes, his one wife died, and then he remarried and uh, was living in New Jersey when she passed away. And if, believe it or not, you know, for years after the Titanic, he went back to the only job he ever knew and he was at sea for many years after the Titanic. When
0: it comes down to the final moment, there are no clashes. Uh, there, there are only heroes. Who, in your opinion, were the real heroes?
1: You know, the first person that comes to my mind is Archibald Butt, who was the aide to President Taft. And time again and again, we heard stories of how he would help ladies get into lifeboats. And one of the ladies, who was also there on the ship from Washington, D.C., like Archibald Butt was, uh, but they didn't know each other. I don't don't think they knew each other very well. But she recalled that he got her into the lifeboat and tucked a blanket around her, and she said it was just like he was getting her ready to go on a motor car ride. And that was really touching to me because I thought, here this poor man knew his fate. He knew what was going to happen to him. And he still found the strength to tuck a blanket around a lady that was going to probably survive. Um, or or maybe he didn't know what would happen to her and, you know, he, he really did feel protective of her. But um, I think he was a gentleman to the end in a way that, you know, is definitely inspiring to us.
0: What was the story about the lady who uh, was out in a partially filled lifeboat and because... They were afraid that they were going to get sucked in by the by the by the downward spiral of the ship and the vacuum created there. They rowed further out rather than going in to pick up uh, people who were still treading water, and she had offered the people rowing that boat money. What was the story on that and and did she did she get that reputation uh unfairly?:
1: Yes, definitely, and that's one of the things I was happy to be able to feature in my book. That was Lady Duff Gordon, Lucy Duff Gordon, and her husband, Sir Cosmo Duff Gordon. And they were from London. She was a fashion designer, one of the most, you know prolific fashion designers of the day. And recently, some letters were found in the attorney office in England, the attorney that represented them that have vindicated them of all claims for years. This poor couple was scorned because they were accused of offering money to the crew that were rowing their boat to row faster and row away from the Titanic because they were afraid of the suction. That was a huge concern to all of these people in these lifeboats was the suction when the Titanic finally went under. When in fact, what we find out is that They were just doing what anybody would have done. The lifeboats were sent out, not completely full in many cases. And in their case, that was what happened. They actually gave money to the crew. When the money, sorry, the crew told them, you know, we lost our jobs tonight. I was going to make X amount of money on this trip and then come back. And now I'm out of work and there's a coal strike. So the Duff Gordons were trying to be kind, and they were trying to be generous, and somehow out of the nightmare of that night, that got twisted, and they became demonized for trying to do something nice. And I think that's a good reminder to all of us today not to jump the gun on if you hear a story like that. You know, don't always assume that what you hear is the truth. That's
0: a great lesson. What's the lore behind the Bronx Cocktail, and how is it made?
1: Oh, well, the Bronx Cocktail is just one of my favorites because, well, first of all, it was invented at the Waldorf Astoria, which was the hotel that was owned by John Jacob Astor IV, and, of course, his cousin. And um, the Bronx Cocktail I love because it has a little orange juice in it. And I, I have a, a little back-and-forth going with, Frank Kayafa, who um, is one of the contributors in the book, and he contributed a few of the Bronx recipes. And he loves to just have the snap of the orange peel and a little bit of orange flavor from that. Whereas I always love mimosas, so I like to add a little bit of orange juice, and I almost think of it as a um, you know a sort of a more of a serious mimosa. It's, Kind of a, um, it's like a kind of a martini with a little orange juice in it, and um, I love the story of how it was invented. The story goes that um, somebody created this new drink at the Waldorf Astoria, and when they asked what it would be called, the the person that was trying to think of a name had just been to the Bronx Zoo, and they thought of how you know when people drink too much they. Sometimes become like the the animals at the zoo, so they the that's where the um, story go is that's the story of where the name comes from from not necessarily the borough the Bronx but the um, the actual zoo.
0: In your book and and already in today's uh, interview, you've discussed the author Lawrence Beasley. I found Lawrence Beasley's book on the Titanic. Uh, since he was there and he was a survivor. And he started writing that account, I think, just about a week, actually, after the sinking. I know I noticed in your book that you refer back to it a number of times. It's an excellent account. I wanted to ask you what's your favorite, what bit of knowledge he shared, if you can recall one that you thought was your favorite, unknown to you, piece of knowledge.
1: Well, I'm going to go back to that hymn service. He was really instrumental in making that happen because he was a prominent person in second class, uh, very well known at the time, and i I just think that's so neat that they spun up that uh, hymn service just you know of their own volition, they just wanted to do that, and he was a a really key component in letting it happen or helping it happen, I should say, because um, you know they they kind of knew that the the um, chaplain would listen to uh, Lawrence Beasley if he asked about it and then you know Lawrence Beasley didn't say no that's another lesson I learned in research in this book is the wonderful things that can happen by saying yes you know he said to them yes I'll ask if it's okay if we have this hymn service and I'll get it organized you know so many times we hear no these days and I think Seeing that from a, a perspective of someone like Lawrence Beasley, you know, making, making someone's dream happen that night, I think is pretty profound. What was the story of the orphan
0: uh, children? I think one was, uh, one was maybe five or four, and the other maybe
1: two. The Navratil y- yes. twins. Could and you
0: share that story? Yeah.
1: Sure. Well, for a long time, there were two babies, but no one knew. Who they belong to and the story still isn't straight as for sure um but it ended up being a situation where a man had taken his children and he was going through a divorce and so that's why the children were separated from him in the during the sinking they were in a lifeboat and it was just sort of a a real strange experience for people you know wondering where did these babies come from and um That's pretty much the crux of that story. Yeah, they couldn't. The older one couldn't speak English,
0: so they, they, uh, as I understand, and it took them a long time
1: to figure out uh, what had happened. Right. I should have mentioned that that he couldn't speak English. They were French, and um, imagine how scared those poor little boys were. I'm going to go back to the passengers for a second
0: and ask you. What were some of your favorite passengers and passenger stories aboard that ship, and why?
1: I love the story of the man from my hometown. I grew up hearing about a man named Daniel Coxon who was a popcorn vendor in the town that I grew up in. I was I lived in the town for a few years and then actually grew up in Wausau, but he was in Merrill, Wisconsin, which is in north central Wisconsin, and he was a popcorn and peanut vendor and. There's many reasons I love this story, aside from the fact that he's from my hometown. I don't know what happened to him after he boarded the Titanic, but he was born with a shriveled arm. His left arm was, you know, not as strong and functioning as it could have been. And so he was questioned by authorities. It would have been yesterday, 107 years ago on the 10th, when he boarded in Southampton with his brother and his nephew. And in the um, the inquiry later, the, the brother of Dan Coxon explained how he got held up because the British officials were asking him so many questions, uh, they were really, you know, ironing him through because of his arm. Um, and yet he never let this arm slow him down. He was a professional to the end, he was a businessman throughout North Central Wisconsin, and... It's one of my favorite discoveries of this research that I did. I found a letter that he wrote to, at the, that time, a very well-known journalist. Actually, he was well-known in the 1930s. He became well-known around the world as H.V. Caltonborn. Um, sort of, they, they call him the Walter Cronkite of radio. Many people refer to him like that. And at the time the Titanic sunk, he was the dramatics editor at the Brooklyn Daily Eagle. And on the 17th of April, two days after the Titanic sunk, when headlines around the globe were dominated by the disaster, he received a letter from popcorn Dan that said, I'm coming to visit you. I'm on the Titanic. I'll be there on probably the day the letter would have gotten there around the 17th. And I'm looking forward to staying with you in Brooklyn. And, H V the next morning went running into his boss's office and the letter was printed in the Brooklyn Daily Eagle that day or the next morning. So, um, I love that story because um uh, it's about two men. H V Coltonborn was also from my hometown, and it's about this friendship of these men who um, you know, were gonna meet up after the Titanic landed and uh, docked at uh chelsea Piers in new york city and um i just i think that's such a neat story there are so many
0: stories and listeners out there i'd like you to know there's so many stories in this book that our conversation today barely scratches the surface but it it's informative it's uh it's a real window to history and it just makes it fascinating because there's so many great stories here. You shared your favorite passenger story. What's your favorite crew story, a, a member of the crew?
1: Well, I, uh, my favorite is the Charles Jockin story by far. Um, I, but I also love the story of Ed Wilton, who saved a, a handwritten crew menu. And I, that was really helpful to me because I wanted to be in, inclusive of the crew and you know, all sorts of different menus, not just the one first-class dinner menu that everyone has celebrated so much, especially since the Rick Archbold and Dana McCauley book, The Last Dinner on the Titanic. It, it really set the spark for people around the world to recreate that last first-class dinner. But I really wanted to expand and show a variety of different menus. And the Ed Wheelton handwritten crew menu was amazing. And also the Sea Trials menus, You mentioned the Plover, and that was served on April 2nd to the crew after the sea trials. There were sea trials on April 2nd and on April 3rd, and on each day they had a fabulous meal. Um, And one of the meal items on the 2nd was the Plover, and I thought that was really neat and telling about the crew and the chef that they thought to have a a seabird, Plover is a seabird, and it was, a wonderful way to honor these men who had they had dedicated their lives to working on the sea.
0: You know, uh, there were three classes on that ship: first class, second class, and third class. My wife always tells me I have no class, uh, and when I looked at the <laughs> when I looked at the menus uh, from the top to the bottom of the ship, I actually, if I could have, I would have gone down to third class and eaten there. I absolutely love uh, some of the items. <laughs> that they were uh that they were enjoying down there could you kind of explain the difference between the meal offerings between first class second class and third class
1: sure like in one of the things we saw we see in um third class is tripe which is the stomach of a cow and it's cooked down in the recipes that we include in the book it was just tripe and onions on the ship that we've got these more doctored up recipes in the book we sort of did a study on tripe with a couple of different recipes from contributors around the world and it turns out this is a fabulously honored recipe in many families these turned out to be heirloom recipes that i was able to track down and so tripe is really interesting there's also the the gruel that was on the third class menu in just the sound of it today, I think, you know, it, it definitely must have taken on a whole different connotation over the years, because for that to be on a menu now, it would be <laughs> unheard of, you know, but at that point, it, was, it still had not um, received such a, you know, bad reputation. Um, and it was on the menu then. And we see buckwheat cakes, real hearty foods, boiled potatoes, all sorts of different jacket potatoes were in all three classes and when you hear the phrase jacket potatoes that's really just a baked potato so um again we think of the the way things are called then versus now and you gave an example of that earlier of you know we would never think to call something a certain way and and back then it was real common so and then we look at first class the extreme opposite and all the, the oysters and canapes, lobster canapes, and, you know, salmon mousseline, and it was the height of French culinary because the White Star Line commissioned an Italian entrepreneur by the name of Luigi Gatti. He was on board as, he was not on board, but he had uh, commissioned these um, outposts, these French restaurants that were not associated in any other way with the White Star Line. So they brought in a whole bunch of different staff from um, all over the place to staff that those French uh, kitchens. And, um, in fact, that was one of the reasons why many of the cooks were not able to make it out because they weren't considered White Star Line staff or passengers. So during the British inquis- inquiry, there was at least one headline that ran uh, that said that Titanic cooks drowned like rats because they were held back.
0: Mm. Could you describe, Boris, one of the most powerful... Well, there was, there were a lot. But one of the ones that really impressed me was the eyewitness testimony of Captain
1: Edward Smith's last
0: moments. Could you describe that to our
1: listeners? At least one eyewitness testimony places uh, Captain Smith as a gentleman to the end swimming out to a lifeboat with a baby and they did not know because you have to imagine it was complete pitch darkness. They, they were even lighting the tips of ropes to try to get some kind of light. They would use their, you know, matches for their cigarettes to to light the ropes and try to um, see that way. But it was complete darkness, but they do believe that it was captain Smith that brought the baby out to the lifeboat and then was offered a seat And he declined, even in the water, if that account is accurate about what happened.
0: Incredible. I'm going to get to the major debate that a lot of people have, especially uh, researchers in the same class as you who have gone over uh, testimony after testimony. And I guess I could paraphrase that by by saying, and the band played on. (laughs) And you know what debate we're approaching, do you not?
1: I sure do, and the debate continues on that. You know, and I, I hoped I did an, a really thorough job of showing the different eyewitness accounts. And one that I think of, the one that I think, you know, is the most convincing to me is Edith Rosenbaum Russell, the famous fashion journalist of the time. She was returning from Paris after the spring fashion shows. And she said, well, heavens no, they wouldn't have been playing nearer my god to be because that would have discouraged the passengers and you know they would have wanted to uplift them like for instance john jock hume the first violinist ran into violet Jessup. while he was um dashing off to go and play after the iceberg and after the titanic struck the iceberg and he said to her we're just going to cheer folks up for a little bit we're just that was so that was clearly their mission. Violet shared that later that Jock had said to her, you know, we're just going to go try to cheer folks up for a little bit which makes sense to me too that they probably weren't playing Near My God to be. and as far as playing to the very end they probably played as long as they could and they, they certainly did play for a substantial amount of time. So we know that the band was playing during the loading of the lifeboats for instance and very close to the end very close to the end but um what what they were playing you know the song autumn that you mentioned that was one of the songs um that people thought they heard and you know that song alone is sobering enough when you think of the idea of autumn it's really more about a romance that just the thought of autumn might be a, a little hint at um some more sobering music but um as far as you know near my God to the, I would have to say my in my own guess, Edith Rosenbaum Russell probably has a good point there What
0: was your favorite movie was it the uh nineteen was it nineteen fifty five uh, night to remember or was it the James Cameron version what was that nineteen ninety five uh yeah
1: and that is the toughest question i've had on this whole uh book tour <laughs> good I cannot oh my gosh, that I could not pick which I just love them both. So oh, much. both would both just I tear mean, your heart out. <laughs> yes. Yeah, and I I'm a real fan of old film. I I you know, so many people are like the T M C crowd. I love old film. I really appreciate it. And even though sometimes scenes can seem a little hokey, you know, or you can tell it's something's really obvious and we've really been able to iron out a lot of the uh, uh, misnomers from, you know, the original accounts and so forth that are put together. And so even that too, there there's not everything's dead on and so forth, but I still just love that movie. And of course, who doesn't love James Cameron's Titanic movie? I mean, it's just, you hear the music and you just can't think of anything else. Did, Wrap everything around that romance, because, as I saw in the research I did, there were quite a number of blossoming budding romances, and people it and it happens when you get on an airplane today, you know you kind of i know just through the years it's always been kind of a place where people meet and you can you know see people flirting and i mean it's just travel does that to you, and so there there were many cases of of these blossoming romances.
0: There are also stories of, of of imposters and swindlers and con men aboard. Can you share any of those with our listeners?
1: Well, as I mentioned earlier about the the blossoming romances, there was one case, a woman named Kate Buss, who was traveling by herself. And you know, throughout the different letters that I read and the different eyewitness testimonies, it was very clear that a man named Dr. Morowek was trying to get to know her in a romantic way, and it wasn't very welcomed. She had um, made it real clear to him she wasn't interested, and she wanted to spend time with her friends that she had met aboard the ship and new friends she had made. And it turns out that this man, you know, Kate might have been... um, to something, she might have noticed something about him because, as it turns out, Doctor Morawack, who did not survive the disaster, was a man who had swindled innocent, unsuspecting widows out of their estates more than once. In fact, the headlines read after he perished on the Titanic that um, the his uh, greed and his um, you know in his inheritance didn't serve him well at all because he was literally on the Titanic because he was returning from a trip where he was going to check out an estate he had inherited from a woman. And he had swindled it away from her family, her children, and he was trying to decide what to do with this villa. So he had gone over to, I think it was Germany to visit the villa. And on his way back is when he, passed away on the Titanic. So, as you can imagine, reporters of the day had a field day with that, with headlines about, you know, here he is, you know, coming back from this swindle deal, and he, you know, experiences this disaster, which, um, of course, would, you know, not be something anyone would wish on anyone at all, but it was there. And um, apparently he had done this with several unsuspecting widows what
0: can the student of history take home from your book
1: well you know i hope that this is a book people can read and they can feel uplifted even though it's a story about disaster and trial and tribulation and horrific experiences these people where the wind beneath my wings, while I was going through some of the most trying experiences of my personal life, my mother passed away suddenly and unexpectedly. And a few months after that, I was diagnosed with triple negative breast cancer. And I still had the book to get done. And I still had my job and everything else going on, other concerns. And someone reminded me, you know, when I was going through reading these people's terrible stories and writing them, you know, uh, putting them together into this book, a friend said to me, it's no, that you're working on this book right now because these people are keeping you strong. They're providing you inspiration and they
0: did. How very true. Courage, heroism, love. Yes. I mean, it's all there in huge doses.
1: I mean, to read a quote, from Dr. William Minahan of Green Bay, Wisconsin, who said as he was getting his uh, wife and sister into a lifeboat, he said, be brave, no matter what, be brave. And I would, you know, read that while I was working late at night, sometimes, you know, way past midnight. And how can you not be inspired by that?
0: First of all, I want to tell you how much I've looked forward to this and that uh, how much I've, I've loved uh, the chance to talk to you about this book it's, it is it is inspiring, you're right. And there's so many, so many, 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 many more stories in here, and I encourage all of our listeners to get a copy of this, The Last Night on the Titanic. It's out right now in hardback uh, by Veronica Hinke, H-I-N-K-E. And Veronica, could you tell people how they can get in touch with you and how they can find your book?
1: I'm on Facebook. Um, I'd love to keep in touch through Facebook. I'm on Instagram and Twitter at foodstringer, all together with no spaces or anything. And then you can purchase the book online at Amazon, Books a Million, and Barnes and Noble. It's also available in bookstores everywhere now.
0: Well, I know it's going to do extremely well, and uh, I hope I get first shot at your next one because I know there's going to be more.
1: Well, I really appreciate being able to talk with you, and it's been a joy.
0: Thank you so very, very much for sharing your time with us today, and we all wish you uh, the best of luck in your personal life and in your author life. And uh, it's been an absolute pleasure having the opportunity to speak with you and to share you with our listeners. Thank you. Thank you, John. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye. Well, listeners, what a great person, what a great, inspiring story. I hope you all order a copy of her book, You're going to enjoy the drink recipes, the food recipes, and the story behind the story. And keep your eyes open for more episodes on the Titanic from 1001 Heroes. We're doing one called The Mysteries of the Titanic, which should be out soon. And another one is a multi-episode series based on Lawrence Beasley's book. And he was a survivor of the Titanic. And he wrote an excellent book. So kind of think of the next two weeks as Titanic weeks. And we're going to cover that story from top to bottom. Thank you so much for joining us. Please take time to send us a review if you enjoy our show. We would appreciate that very much, and thanks for listening. We'll see you soon.